0: The Bane Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast, Strange Weather in Overwhere? In Overwhere. Plus, part one of DJ e. Butler's conversation with David Weber about In Fury Born. And we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. Today we bring you part one of a two-part interview that DJ Butler conducted with David Weber about Weber's novel, In Fury Born. Fans of Weber's work, and of course we know that applies to a lot of people listening to and watching this podcast, will recognize In Fury Born as an earlier Weber novel. In fact, it's one of his most celebrated books, which is one reason we've reissued it as a trade paperback with a brand new cover. The other reason? Weber's new series, Ascend to Empire, the first entry of which Governor Weber co-authored with Richard Fox, serves as a prequel to in fury born and that was all the excuse we needed to bring this classic back out to reach a new audience as is always the case with david weber here on the podcast the discussion with dj butler was far-ranging and interesting and is sure to please old fans new fans and future fans of in fury born but first the news In February of 2022, Jane Linscold and Bain Books will invite you on a different kind of fantasy adventure in the novel, The Library of the Sapphire Wind. But over at Bain.com right now, we're offering you a taste of what's to come in this new series known as Overwear, with a piece of short fiction entitled Fire, Bright, Rain. Disaster at the Library of the Sapphire Wind. What begins as a normal day for ursine type Leah and her apprentice chef in meadow village soon spirals into disaster. Earthquakes aren't common in the vicinity of the library of the sapphire wind, but working for a library dedicated to the magical arts for as long as she has Leah is accustomed to expecting the unusual. But this is no ordinary earthquake and it soon becomes clear that life in meadow village will never be the same. That's Fire, Bright, Rain, a new prequel story to Library of the Sapphire Wind by Jane Linscold. And it's available to read free at Bain.com right now. Head on over to Bain.com and check out this month's Charles E. Gannon November eBook sale. To celebrate the release of his new novel, This Broken World, we're offering up a cornucopia of savings on Gannon's backlist. Save $2 per book on the award winning Kane Riordan series and $1 per book on other Gannon backlist titles. The sale ends November 30th, 2021, and these prices are available wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. And now, part one of DJ Butler's discussion with David Weber.
2: um all right well uh welcome this is dj butler i'm here with david weber to talk about his uh new release of in fury born uh it's out now in hardcover and in all your favorite ebook formats always drm free if you buy them at bain.com of course uh david weber is an american science fiction and fantasy author he was born in cleveland ohio in 1952 weber and his wife sharon live in greenville south carolina with their three children and a passel of dogs with a blue collar science fiction loving father a college english teacher mother who also owned her own ad agency in the 70s and a lifelong love for history he was clearly predestined to perpetrate a whole host of military science fiction and fantasy novels as well as anthologies uh welcome uh welcome david glad to have you
0: oh thank you i i should point out that the the bio <laughs> we really need to update it uh oh both of the girls are at college now and michael is graduating from paris island in like a week uh so it's now me sharon at a pass of cats and one dog dog.
2: (laughs) okay okay we'll uh we'll have to get that updated updated for next time yes
0: life changes life changes
2: uh yeah that's funny i had a i had I interviewed chuck gannon last week and had a similar Mm -hmm. ran into a similar issue Um, yeah so you
0: know it's if you just kind of what was it satchel page said about never look back something might be gaining (laughs) 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 yeah now
2: i want to i want to start out with uh observing that this is a reprint of a novel now Mm -hmm. according to amazon I had to tell you it was released in the year 1600 in Middle English.
0: Yes, well, <laughs> I I plagiarized the whole thing from Chaucer. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs>
2: when you were working in the court of Elizabeth, you
0: would yeah. have ripped off yeah, Chaucer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, before James before Jimmy the 1st came in and kicked me out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Amazon I I blush to disclose, but Amazon occasionally gets stuff wrong yeah yeah
2: yeah this seems like a lot wrong
0: <laughs> yeah only only three four hundred years i mean geez, right. man
2: the bur- the budding elizabethan science fiction military science fiction scene yeah uh well okay fair enough now i i read the book liked it very much um this is not in in your honor verse or uh one of your other settings this was uh i think at the time a standalone novel it was
0: it was um go ahead
2: i was just going to ask about the setting it's about a thousand years ish in the future we've got uh at least at least two major human forces There, there are rogue worlds but you've got a league and an empire yeah there's been a war against an alien species it's still got tensions What would you like to tell readers about the setting and the future history here?
0: Well, okay, first, this was actually, I think, the last solo novel that I did before Jim Bain said to me, every book that you write seems to be spawning sequels, so why don't you like plan a series from the get-go, which is how the Honor Harrington's came to be. Um... I really don't know where the um, the uh, idea for this book came from. Um, every so often, I'll have a story idea that just sort of arrives full blown. Now, that doesn't mean I know everything about it, but it's like I know, okay, this is the story I'm going to tell. Now I got to write it to see how it comes out, you know, kind of thing. Um, this one was particularly strange in that I wrote the entire uh, path of the fury okay let's go back and talk just a minute about the anatomy of in fury born okay. the original novel set in this universe was path of the fury which is actually the second half of in fury born and it was one of the last of my books to come out in mass market paper for as its first release And I had a bunch of people who wanted it in hardcover and I'm telling them, you know what? They don't usually go back and do mass market paperbacks in hardcover. But I knew a lot about uh, Alicia DeVries, my my heroine's um, earlier life that I hadn't put into the book. So what I decided to do was to write a complete prequel and then bind it into the same covers as the existing novel. So I had a few people like, "Well, oh, it's just recycling the old book. If you actually look, the word count more than doubled, and there's a bunch of, of new material in here. Yeah. Okay, now, the really interesting thing to me was that I wrote the entire original Path of the Fury in less than two months. I never had a book come together that quickly for me. Um, and I've never had a book come together that quickly for me since. Uh, That was one of the reasons that I stayed away from the prequel as long as I did, because I was afraid that if I couldn't match the the speed and the energy with which the original book came out, there would be a really discernible difference between them, and that wouldn't work if I was going to bind them together. It might have worked in a novel and a prequel, but not in one volume, where it was supposed to segue seamlessly from one to the other. Um, but finally, I decided I would go ahead and do it. And I don't think most people could tell any difference at all between the the voice of the two halves of, of the book. Um, the other interesting thing was that about Two months after I had turned the novel into Bain Books, uh, my uh, sister-in-law sent me a filk song by one of my favorite filkers that I think had just come out. You know, I certainly was not aware of it, and it's from from Leslie Fish, and I think the title of it is Fury, Hmm. and it's like one of us was channeling the other one. I mean, there are differences, there are differences, but they're both about uh, a a a female heroine character, uh, stolen, you know, this high tech ship going after vengeance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually called Jim Bain and I said, Jim, he <laughs> said, yes. And I said, I have just discovered that Leslie Fish has this you know song out you know kind of thing and and he said doesn't matter and she i said but her song is already out and he said doesn't matter she just published first years was in the pipeline (laughs) so i'm like okay fine go for it anyway uh the book is set um about a thousand years in the future maybe even a a little further than that um and the two human polities involved uh, are the Terran Empire um, and um, the, uh, well, no, there's actually only one polity, major polity involved at this point, the Terran Empire, because the Terran Republic is gone. Um, and the, um, the Rish, the Rishathan sphere, those are the primary alien antagonists of, of the empire. Now, if you go back about 300 years before Infury Born* is set, you get into how the empire came to exist. And at that point, uh, there were two human polities. There was the Terran Empire. Well, there was the Terran Federation. And there was the, uh, the Terran Republic. Um, and the um, uh, the Federation was basically, there was a war on Earth between the Asian Alliance and the Western Alliance and the Asian Alliance lost. Um, and uh, following the war, um, the Asian uh, uh, out of the Asian Alliance's members uh, felt um, they felt victimized by the victors because they were saddled with blame for the war, which, by the way, they did actually start, but it was kind of a little bit like the post-Versailles treatment of Germany in their eyes. You're saying we were responsible for everything, you know, and so when the Western alliance segued into what was in effect a genuine world government rather than a UN, um, the Western, the, the Eastern alliance refused to join it. They weren't going to be second class members, etc. So when interstellar travel began, you had missions that were being launched primarily by the People's Republic of China from the Eastern Alliance. And then you had both uh, private enterprise and government sponsored coming from the Federated Government of Earth. And they were deliberately going in different directions. The the, Asia, the 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 Chinese, especially were determined to build their own extrasolar uh entity. Um, and this was using uh, slower-than-light drives to to begin the colonization process. And you get a couple hundred years into that process when Somebody comes up with a faster than light drive, and all of a sudden, you know, everything changes in terms of whether or not these extrasolar colonies can interact with one another and Earth, you know, and, and everything else. And by this time, the um, other Asian states have joined the, the Chinese in establishing what translates as the Terran Republic. Okay. Um, and they begin sort of interacting and things that, you know, it's okay, we're getting past our animosities. You know, there's a tradition of animosity, all right, but nobody is really planning on shooting anybody on site or anything like that. Well, this is where the Rish come into the picture, because the Rish are very aggressive. Uh, they're carnivores. Uh, they're very aggressive, but when they first encounter humans and begin studying, they realize several things. One is humans are a lot more uh, fertile than the Rish are. So human populations are gonna grow faster. Uh, Humans are better in the hard sciences, okay? The Rish are better biologists, but, you know, where physics and 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 that kind of stuff are concerned, the humans definitely have the edge. It's not you know, a stupendous edge, but it's an edge. By the time we get to in theory, born, the humans have a huge edge because the Rish are unable to uh, neurally link with computers, which the humans can. So in more fighting terms, they're really screwed when it comes to reaction speed and whatnot <laughs> up against a human unit. But the other thing that they discover about humans is that humans like much lower population densities than the Rish do. The Rish like dense populations, and that means that they expand only slowly on an interstellar scale, whereas both of these human polities are just... <clears throat> oh, look, there's 19 people on the planet now. We better think about moving on. I mean, you know, that kind of thing, especially uh, for the Terran Federation, okay? So they decide that they need a solution to the human problem, okay? And the solution that they find is to foment war between the Republic and the Federation. Um, and they do this by being good friends to both sides, okay uh, and but they are quietly finding and and backing lunatic fringe groups, especially in the in the republic. Uh, they are helping uh, when when incidents arrive, being in you know, honest broker between the humans and, the, and between the two bunches of humans and telling both sides, well, look, you know, you guys are being reasonable, but these other guys, I mean, you know, we're doing the best we can, but they're just really, you know, kind of thing. And then they begin actually funding and carrying out themselves terrorist incidents that they can blame on, on the republic. And eventually they take this long-standing tradition of animosity, which had largely died down, and they've kicked the pot to the point that there is a huge amount of distrust between the two human polities. And then, I don't think we've touched on this in any of the books, the actual event, but they actually carry out a major attack that kills several million humans. And they use a republic registry ship to do it and then blow the ship up so there are no survivors and the republic is like well we didn't do it and the Federation says well who the hell else did it, you know kind of thing and it goes downhill from there and turns into a shooting war. Well, the Federation is substantially larger than the Republic. So it should have been a very short war, except that the Rish, after declaring neutrality are secretly propping the Republic up because we like you better than we like them. You're not as aggressive as they are, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what they are actually planning on doing is letting these two human polities bleed each other um, until one or both is on the brink of collapse and then they're going to launch an attack that will pretty much sweep the board. That, that's the plan. Yeah. Um, and so all of this is 300, 350 years in the past by the time we get to Alicia and uh, Inferior Born. It's actually what uh, Richard Fox and I are, the story Richard Fox and I are beginning to tell in the prequels to this, uh, Governor, which came out, what? july no it's been out longer than that no um this year beg your pardon
2: but this year it came out this year
0: yeah it did come out this year anyway so by the time alicia comes along what's happened is that the rish their plan kind of miscarried just a little bit Um, they decided it was time to launch their attack because the Federation was having a civil war that eventually wound up creating empire. The Republic was on the rope, so we're going to take out the Republic, just sweep right through there, and then we're going to go ahead and take out the, the Federation. Well, the Republic turned out to be a whole heck of a lot harder to digest than they thought that it would. And by the time they were sort of ready to go deal with the federation, there was no federation, it had uh, transmuted into the empire Uh, and the empire under this very charismatic first emperor that they've got knows who was responsible for a half century of war and 50 billion dead humans, that it was the Rish who were responsible for it. And so the war weariness and the collapse that the Rish were counting on is something very different when the final confrontation between the, the empire and the sphere begins, and the Rish get their butts kicked pretty pretty quick. Um, as part of the um, the peace settlement, they're forced to disgorge all of the human worlds that they had occupied. Some of them are annexed uh, immediately to the empire, some were occupied during the fighting. Uh, the others become independent polities in, in what were the old Republican worlds. Um, and uh, they become uh, what's known as, as uh, rogue worlds um in that they don't belong to the to the empire it doesn't necessarily mean evil some of them you know and there's a lot of revanchism uh in some of these these uh planets where the where the empire is concerned uh even though the empire has allowed them to go their own way rather than you know occupying. Uh, Meanwhile, the empire is expanding its borders gradually into the old Republican sphere, Um, but it is not, you know, this bare-fanged conquest, even though it is deeply resented by some of the folks involved, so that there are various, like, you know, uh, freedom uh, organizations that are dedicated to carrying out terrorist attacks on the empire, trying to destabilize it, trying to destabilize the referendums under which planets and star systems actually seek membership in the, in the empire, you know, etc. And uh, the Rish are giving the fire a good kick whenever they think they can <laughs> get away with it. So all of that brings us to Alicia, Um, and uh, Alicia is, I think she has an interesting parentage because on her mother's side, uh, her grandfather is one of like the two living holders of the Banner of Terra, which is the Congressional Medal of Honor. And he is pretty much universally known in the Marine Corps as the Sergeant Major uh, kind of thing. And um, you find out uh, when you read Governor, um, the star system where an awful lot of the action takes place in Governor is the star system that Elysia's mother's family comes from. So you begin to understand why they are very, very loyal to the House of Murphy uh, and, and the Empire. But uh, her dad's her grandfather's a marine, and she really wants to be a marine. Her father uh, is um, an Uviti. and they are uh, a mutation uh, of of humanity. Um, and they are known for their 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 drive to build consensus rather than embrace conflict. Okay, they are not the guys you're going to see in the military. This just isn't their thing. Now, her father happened, they happen to be very good diplomats because it's their nature to seek consensus, to find an answer, you know, short of shooting. And her father is a very uh, effective uh, and relatively high placed uh, diplomat. But most people looking at that parentage are going to go like, eh, I don't think you know she's going to. But she does. She goes into the Marines. She uh, enlists very young. Um, she made a deal with her father; she'd complete her college degree first, which she burned through in like two years, you know, kind of thing. And he held up on his end. If she still wanted to go into the Marines, he would he would back her. Um, and uh, so the first half of In Fury Born uh, deals with her, uh, her childhood briefly uh, and her uh, Marine career. Uh, and at the end of the, of her uh, Marine career, um, she's still only maybe 30. When, when we get to that point. But she has a career which is just probably as good as anything that her, that her grandfather had in terms of her, her accomplishments and her ability. And she gets recruited early on for the Imperial Cadre. Uh, the Imperial Cadre are almost, you could think of them as the household troops of the House of Murphy Uh, because they owe fealty directly to the crown, Uh, whereas the other branches of the service, their oaths are to the Constitution. Their oath is to the crown, and they are specifically limited under the Constitution to a very small force but they are the elite of the elite of the of the empire's military. They are the ones that the emperor can send to deal with the problem without having to worry about taking the Senate with him or anything else. And as a result, they get a lot of the hot potatoes for peacekeeping, anti-terrorism, ops, that kind of thing. Um, and Alicia, um, as... Her last um uh, assignment as a marine um, her company is virtually wiped out um, she well wait a minute let me let me sorry 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 i'm i'm that's not her last mission as marine. It's her last okay. <laughs> All right. So she gets recruited for the cadre after uh, a really working well. Okay. Um, And she is the youngest like master sergeant in the history of the cadre when she's when she's recruited. Um, And they get dropped into something called the Shallingsport raid after she's been a member of the cadre for about two years, maybe three. And it turns out that the entire, well, let's see, I'm really telling you a lot about the book here for people who haven't read it. You
2: decide how much you want to avoid spoilers. I mean, I... I, Okay,
0: well, let me just put it this way. The Shaolingsport raid turns out it's an absolute unmitigated disaster. 96% of her marine company is killed. And she winds up taking command, and they actually pull it off despite the losses that they've taken. And that's the point at which she receives a direct commission in the cadre. So she moves from being non-com to being uh, commissioned. And if you fast forward a few more years, she leaves the cadre. Uh, She leaves it at the end of the prequel, Uh, and she leaves it because she found out some things about the Chalingsport raid, and in effect, the emperor breaks faith with her. He probably never saw it that way. He didn't understand it the way that she understood it, but that's the way she understands it. And she just she says you yeah, know I can't serve serve him anymore, and so she leaves the cadre, which leads into the second half of the book, yeah. where some bad guys make the classic mistake of not being sure she's dead, uh, after killing her entire family, in a raid on the planet that they've moved to.
2: Which must have been the opening of the original.
0: That was the opening of the original novel. Yeah, and it's Um, interesting.
2: All this, all this kind of discussion of like um, political manipulation, double dealing, uh, has everything to do with uh, with the sort of plot as it evolves. I mean, it's interesting background, and I assume it's got a lot to do with uh, with the books you're writing with Richard, but. But, uh, you know, the Shelling's Fort disaster is, uh, it's not her fault.
3: Right? No.
0: It's not that they no. screw
2: up. No.
0: Uh, they that, do, they do superbly. Yeah. The problem is that they are mousetrapped. Yeah. Um, now, the the thing is that the political background, is also critical to what happens in the original novel because it's what sets the context for the traitor who is actually behind everything yeah. in the second half of *In Fury Born*. Yeah. Um, so it's it's you know it's it's all one. Okay, I don't know if it shows okay, but I like to get at the politics behind why things are happening in my books. Um, And um, Tony Weisskopf and I were talking one time and she, she told me her definition, of the difference between military science fiction and militarist science fiction. And I said, yes. And she said, okay. Military science fiction as she understands it is written by people who have an understanding of the military and an understanding of the historical context that leads to conflict uh, and, and, you know, how you get from here to there and how militaries operate when they're actually fighting a war. She said, militarist science fiction is written by people who don't have a clue about any of the above, but want to write a book with blowing up starships in it. (laughs) And she said, and the result is that (laughs) There's all kinds of loose ends flapping in the breeze that anybody who does actually understand the military and military history is going, no, 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 the whole time they're reading it. And it makes it difficult for people like me, for example, to suspend disbelief when I've got somebody who clearly does not understand Uh, how this would, this would have to work. Um, So for me, when I'm setting up the the background for a conflict, it's important that the conflict that I'm setting up be internally consistent and that the humans who, or, or aliens who are reacting to events, are reacting in a I hesitate to say rational because too often it's, you know, reactions are emotive rather than, than reason, but are reacting in a realistic fashion Hmm. to the stimuli that is coming in and driving them into the kind of, of, uh, A situation where somebody is actually willing to kill other people, if you see what I'm saying. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is that if you write a story in which only the bad guys get killed, or if a good guy gets killed, they're not one of the central characters and they die instantly, you know, kind of thing. Or if an important character gets hit, it's a wound that allows them to continue fighting, you know, they're, they're going to be fine, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You're writing pornography. Okay. I mean, splatter porn. Um, the truth is that just because you're the good guys doesn't mean that you're bulletproof. And the truth is that if you commit to a military solution to a problem, the one thing you can be absolutely sure of is that you're going to kill a bunch of people you didn't mean to kill, okay? You're going to lose people you didn't want to lose. And a lot of people who otherwise would have been alive are going to be dead at the end of the day. Now, that doesn't mean that you always have an option that involves not fighting, but it means that if you're going to commit to an actual armed conflict, you should be damn sure before you do it that, number one, you're aware that there's going to be a price that's going to be paid not by you as the political leader or whatever who, who launched the war, but by the people who actually fight it and get in the way of it and get chewed up by it. There's gonna be a prize. And that what you are hoping to accomplish is worth the price. And that's one of the decision points uh, that I try to put in front of the political leaders in my books, yeah. okay? And the, if you if you take a look at the villains in my books, the difference between the good guys and the villains in my books is the good guys are almost always responsibility takers. Okay, uh, if there's a problem that they can fix, it's their job to fix it. It's not their job to say, you know what, I didn't cause this problem, you know, let somebody else deal with it. Um, they are the, the, the good guys are the ones who say, okay, fine, you know, somebody has to defend this planet. There's a really good chance we'll get killed doing it. But if we don't do it, nobody will do it, uh, which was kind of the motif of the honor of the queen and the honor of Harrington series. The villains are the ones who evade or shirk responsibility or who manipulate the system for personal uh, gain. And don't care who gets hurt along the way. Okay. So, one of my villains can be somebody who is deliberately setting out to victimize other people, but can also be somebody who just didn't give a rat's ass or didn't think it through. Okay. And that's why several of my villains eventually work their way back around into being good guys because confronted with the consequences of their actions that they hadn't thought through, that they hadn't really realized, oh, this is going to be bad. They try to find ways to fix what they broke, or to at least minimize the damage. And that is important to me, too. Okay. One of the things that I think people lose track of is that Very few people wake up one morning and say, I know, I, I think I'll start being a villain today. Okay. Um, there are the scum of the earth types out there. Um, and uh, the more, you know, given our more divisive political climate right now, we're seeing more of them on both sides currently, you know, crawling up out of, this, out of the slime. Uh, here in, in, in the States. Um, and we are seeing it on both sides. Okay. The situation engenders that kind of a thing. Um, but while those people exist, okay, I firmly believe that the majority of human beings on both sides, even the ones screaming at each other the loudest right now, are basically doing the best they can as far as they see what they can do, okay? I don't think there are very many people out there who are saying, you know what, let's just tear everything apart and burn it down. There are some on both sides. Most people are just at a point of not being able to hear the other side right now, to, 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 to fully understand the other side. In the 1632 books, One of the points in one of the collaborations that I did with Eric, one of the points that were made is that the most conservative possible 21st century American and the most liberal possible 21st century American have vastly more in common than either of them have with a 17th century European, or for that matter, a whole bunch of other countries right now in, 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 this, in, in, the, in the 21st century. Uh, and we're basically fighting amongst ourselves over the tiny percentage of our values and whatnot that we don't hold in common, or over the best way to accomplish the same ends, OK? Those aren't villains even the ones that piss me off the most aren't villains. Okay. The villains are the people who say, you know what, we got all these folks out there who are really, you know, really upset over situation X. How can I game it from a power perspective? Or how can I be the one who makes a, makes a bundle off of it? and steers the situation to accomplish those sorts of ends, okay? Or they are the people who ought to be stopping that sort of behavior and aren't for whatever reason, okay? Those are the villains in in my books. And those are the villains in, um, in, in Fury Born, really. Uh, in In a lot of ways um, and that's sort of my long winded way of saying that that's why I have to build political context into the backstory mm-hmm. for me is to is to establish number one the the causes of conflict and number two the immediate actors in the creation of the conflict, if you follow me. And, and, you know, the the Rish are not irrational in their estimate of the threat humanity poses to their, their expansion, okay? The humans are expanding faster. They are going to grab off all the good planets, you know? They are going to become increasingly... Uh, militarily and industrially powerful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the difference between the humans and and the Rish is that the Rish are a much more they are a much more they have a much more centralized view of of how this conflict should work out. The humans are going off in like all sorts of directions at once. The Rish are very focused, okay? And they also don't see any reason why they should worry about how many humans they kill in the process of, of protecting their own power structure. Um, so from that perspective, from a human perspective, they're, they're awful, terrible people, okay? From a non-human perspective, they are, well, no, we're just being reasonable. Here, you know, we're we got a problem, we need to solve it, and this is the way that will work. Okay. I mean, you know, what what what's so hard to understand about that? I mean, just because we're gonna kill your uncle and aunt and 17 of your closest friends, you shouldn't hold that against us, you know, kind of thing. Um so that's the context.
2: Yeah.
1: And now, another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die.
3: One. Tyler dropped his chainsaw and pulled out his cell phone. He'd barely felt the vibration, and it was impossible to hear over the saw. He looked at the caller ID and tried not to curse. Three missed calls from the same. <sighs> Tyler Vernon. Tyler, it's Mrs. Cranshaw. How are you today? Just fine, ma'am, Tyler said, squeezing his eyes shut and waiting for it. She always started nice. And you? Fine, just fine, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Fine weather we're having. Getting cold. The frost should bring out the leaves a treat. Yes, ma'am, Tyler replied. Here it comes. Speaking of it getting cold, I think I asked you to bring by some firewood. Yes, ma'am, and I said I'd get it over there on Friday. Well, it's gone Wednesday. Are you going to be here on Friday? When I say I'm going to be there, I'll be there, ma'am. Well, I asked for it last week. Seems you could have got it here before Friday. You're not doing much else. Just working at the market part-time, working in the bookstore part-time, working at the mill part-time, cutting wood, splitting wood by hand, and answering your damned phone calls every damn day. Oh, and the rare consulting gig. But other than that, I've got all the time in the world. I suppose I could point out that I could have delivered it Sunday night at 10 p.m., but she'd go and tell all her friends I'd been snippy with her and half my clientele would dry up rather than go up against her vicious tongue. Gotta work at the market this evening, ma'am, Tyler said politely. Couldn't get it by until late. Tomorrow I'm going to be working at the bookstore all day and then in the market that evening. I'll be there at one Friday if the job I've got to do at the mill don't take too long, no later than four. You'd better be here by one, Mrs. Cranshaw said. I don't want to be without wood this weekend. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. You'll be with the Lord, Tyler Vernon, Mrs. Cranshaw said and hung up. Tyler closed the phone and swung it back and forth in his fist, wanting to crush it and the whole damned world that seemed to be determined to do nothing but ruin the life of one Tyler Vernon. Tyler Alexander Vernon was five foot two, 135 pounds, and long over the problem of having three first names. He'd been born and raised in Mississippi graduated from LSU with a master's in computer science and, after applying five times at NASA, ended up working for an Internet backbone center in Atlanta. That had led to various positions in the IT field and a pretty steady corporate advance culminating in a senior manager position at AT AT&T in Boston. Then came the real breakout, trade hard. He'd had it made in the shade. He and his wife, okay, had some issues. But even if money couldn't solve everything, it could solve a lot. He'd never thought that his webcomic was going to be anything other than something to fill the time and maybe make its nut. How was he to know it would take off like a Delta rocket? The awards, the adulation. He'd really not cared that much about the money. He really hadn't. It was more about making a change in people's lives, but as it turned out, no, that was unfair. Petra hadn't cared about the money. She cared about the lifestyle the money brought in. She'd hitched her wagon to a rising star at AT&T back before he'd been doing much more than scribbling. Dug in there through the tough years, reveled in the good. Tyler hadn't really wanted the cabin in New Hampshire, but he was glad they'd bought it and paid it off as the money got better and better and... A science fiction-based webcomic about a free trader ship. One of the few that had gotten national syndication, a small TV show, a movie deal in the works. And the gate opened. And science fiction as an industry died. Well, there was always I.T. Five years was a lifetime in I.T. Catching up was possible but hard. He'd been making it. And the Horvath came. And the inevitable depression that followed the orbital bombing of three major cities. Not to mention the stripping the world of all its heavy metals. And like one of those rocks tumbling towards the planet below, his life had gone into freefall. The fiery re-entry culminating in the plasma explosion of the divorce. And now he lived in a cabin in the woods and saw his kids when he had any time between working five jobs. He put his phone away, picked up the saw, yanked it into life, and applied it to the oak he was chunking hard. Tyler, Chuck needs you to work on Saturday. Steve Mormon was the night manager of Max Market in Franconia. Tall, stooped, and prematurely balding, his life ambition seemed to be to retire as the night manager of the Max Market in Franconia. Tyler considered him lacking in ambition. But despite his current down cycle, Tyler considered most people to be lacking in ambition. Since it was Chuck that needed help, that meant day shift and there was an issue. He had a gig at a con in Reading on Saturday. The greater SF market may have suffered the fate of the dodo, but fandom just would not let go. There was even some anime still going. He did some quick calculations. He wasn't getting paid for the gig. The only reason he was invited as the artist guest of honor was that he was somewhat famous, local, and cheap. But he still could move some merch in the dealer's room, and people still bought his sketches of Gomez, Frank, and Forella. The market was a little saturated, but he'd still make more sitting on his butt in the dealer's room than working it off in the store. And Saturday sucked the ski birds from Boston and NYC would be flooding in and asking, why don't you have arugula? Where's the couscous? The flip side being that if he said no, not only would one of the other stalkers get asked the next time some extra time came up, but Steve, the passive-aggressive asshole, would probably start cutting back on his hours. Short-term money or long-term money? more like medium term because he was not going to retire as the night manager of Max Market. Somehow, the con co-chair had gotten a glutton to attend. That decided it. The chance to talk to a real live alien wasn't one to pass up. Steve, I'm really sorry, but I'm already scheduled for something on Saturday, Tyler replied diplomatically. I'd love to work, but I've got a gig in Boston. Uh Uh-huh, Steve said slowly. Isn't that one of those convention things? Yes, Tyler said just as slowly. It's one of those convention things. I can work the evening shift. No, that would be too much juggling in the schedule, Steve said, puffing out his cheeks. I'll just ask Marcia, sorry about that, Tyler said. Anything else? There's a spill in produce, Steve said. Help Tom clean the oranges right away. Tyler took the two crisp twenties from Mrs. Cranshaw and nodded. Thank you, he said politely. Forty dollars seems an awful lot of money for a cord of wood, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Not like I don't already own plenty. Owner of five maple sugar distilleries and over 4,000 acres of maple forest and white pine, one of Mrs. Cranshaw's noted peculiarities was that she was so tight with money she made the buffalo squeal. Go and rate, ma'am, Tyler said. He'd wondered when he started delivering wood to her why he'd been chosen rather than one of the local lumberjacks, you know, people who worked for the old witch. The answer being, nobody else would put up with her. Forty dollars is just robbery for firewood, Mrs. Crenshaw said. When I was a girl, cokes were a nickel, a nickel, I tell you. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. If you tried to stop her, she got mean, best to just ride it out. And the winters is getting worse. It's these damned aliens. At best, the orbital bombardment of Shanghai, Cairo, and Mexico City had dropped global temperatures by point zero 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 one percent according to Glatoon-backed studies. It took a lot more than a few megatons of rock and, okay, some really major secondary fires to disturb Earth's climate. Yes, ma'am. I'm thinking about selling this place, she said. My old bones can't take these winters. She'd apparently been saying that since before her fourth husband died. They'd all been wealthy. They'd all left her all their fortune. And they'd all died of natural causes. Anyone who suggested anything different had better move out of the county. Besides, after husband three, there'd been a pretty thorough investigation and the final result was dead of stress. Yes, ma'am. Everything seems to go up but maple sugar land, she said angrily. Wood isn't bringing what it used to, not at all. Nor maple sugar, damn aliens, hate those damned aliens. Yes, ma'am. Tyler said. He bit his tongue to keep from adding, and so do the Chinese, Egyptians, and Mexicans. They're listening to everything we say, she said, looking at the sky nervously. They're up there, right now listening to us. While the Horvath information systems did seem to be able to track just about any conversation made around an electronic device, Tyler rather doubted that they were personally listening in on this one. He had a moment's empathetic thought for any Horvath who was, and quashed it rather automatically. Yes, ma'am. Well, she said, relenting a bit. You did stack it neat. I like a good neat stack of wood. With most people, when you delivered a cord, it was, here you go, and get it off the pickup as fast as possible. All done, that'll be 40 bucks. Not with Mrs. Cranshaw. That firewood had better be stacked in a neat and tidy cord on her back porch, which took about five times as long as just dumping it in the yard. Speaking of time, Ma'am, I'd love to stay and chat, but I've got an event in Boston where I'm the speaker, and I need to be going. Speaker? She asked incredulously. About What? The web comic I used to do, Tyler said evenly. Oh, yes, Mrs. Cranshaw said, with the most perfect note of neutrality that descended past condescension and straight to contempt. You used to do that comic thing. <laughs> yes, I used to do that comic thing, Tyler said, and now I'm going to go talk to people about doing comic things. Used to run in the paper, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Never did get what was so funny about it. And I didn't like all them alien names, couldn't figure them out. Yes, ma'am, Tyler said. Well, if you've got a commitment, you best be to it, Mrs. Cranshaw said. Can't hardly figure out what you're going to talk on, seeing as there's real aliens now, but you do go on and talk about comic things. Yes, ma'am," Tyler said. "See you in a couple of months, then." Sorry, I'm late, Mister Duval," Tyler said, shaking the con chair's hand. "Got hung up doing some server work." Not a problem," the convention co-chairman said. James Duval was five eleven, Amerasian, and shaped something like a large bear. He had black hair, a white and black beard and it was patterned in a very familiar way. Tyler had never met him, but could just about guess his nickname. Call me Panda, everybody does. You're just in time for the opening ceremonies, which was your first panel. Tyler had gotten a peek into the ballroom as he was walking in and shook his head. I thought you said this was a small con. There must be a thousand people in the ballroom. I'd say they're all here to see you, Panda said with a shrug. Truth is, they're mostly here to see a real live glatoon, Tyler finished, gesturing with his chin at the alien standing in a corner and watching the pros straggling into the small walled-off area. I won't ask how you got him to attend. Simple, Panda said, smiling thinly. I paid him. More than I'm going to get out of the con, but that wasn't the point. Science fiction isn't dead. It's just become reality. And fandom is still where people who want to work for the future gather. I could go on, but we've got to get going. Lead on, Tyler said. Panda headed up the steps to the stage, and the other special guests sort of straggled after him. There was the usual series of tables flanking a podium and the usual milling as people tried to figure out where to sit. And Tyler had his usual flash of annoyance at it. They're chairs. You sit in them. Sit. Heel. Since the glatun looked particularly puzzled, he caught its eye and waved to a chair, pulling it out. Fortunately, glatun and human design were similar enough a human chair worked just fine. The Glatoon sat down, and Tyler snagged the chair next to it by right of conquest. Worked for the Horvath. Ladies and gentlemen, and honored extraterrestrials, Panda said to some cheers at the last part. Welcome to Mirakan. You are Tyler Vernon, the Glatoon whispered as Panda started into what sounded like it was going to be a very long speech. Tyler noted that the voice, which was fairly human-normal, was coming from a small pod on a collar, and the glatun had not, in fact, opened his mouth. He'd heard that they mostly communicated through their implants, but it was still a bit of a shock. Yes, I am, Tyler whispered back. I am Falalor Wathet, captain of the Spinwood Crossing. A pleasure to meet you. You used to write trade hard, did you not? (laughs) Yes, Tyler said shocked again. How did you, why did you know that? The security situation on Terra for traders is good, Wathayat said, but if I was going to be dealing with people, I wished to know who I might be near. We are, after all, potentially dangerous locals with bizarre and disgusting customs. Tyler said. Who will do anything to screw us out of our credits? Our job is to be better screws. You read the comic? Tyler was still recovering from the earlier shocks. This was water on a duck. It was one of the few times when I have understood human humor, the glutton said. Perhaps in part because it struck so close to home and was so true. "'although banks do not routinely send mercenaries to collect a ship. "'There are people in our government who do that quite well, thank you.' "'It was a rare situation,' Tyler pointed out, "'but thanks for the compliment. "'I almost stopped reading in the first few panels,' "'what they had said, "'because I did not understand the cultural conditions "'of stealing the infant's candy. "'When I was able to grasp it fully, though, "'I very nearly had an accident.' Rule nine, if the other guy doesn't feel screwed, we're not doing our jobs. I printed that out and put it up in the mess. We all got it. But I personally feel it's more of a guideline. Same here, Tyler said. If I had really been a backstabber, I would have been a VP. Why did you stop writing? Wathay had asked. I was only able to find the comic on an archive server, and there were no notices to explain your cessation. Phew, Tyler said. Big answer. Basically, it was an economic decision. As soon as the gate opened, everyone in the industry quickly saw that anything SF was falling off. So I got dropped like a hot potato in most of my markets. The website traffic and merch fell off sharply as well. Then... With our Horvath protectors requiring a very high payment for protection, surfer space started getting expensive. Eventually, simply wasn't economical. You have very few new drawings on your personal system, what they had said. Sorry about looking, but your information systems are so primitive that it's a bit like trying not to look through a plate glass window. Once I scanned all your available archives on other systems, I set my system to find more and only realized I was in your personal system when I saw many of them were partials. But I think you haven't had much time. Your personal and business finances are terribly screwed up. My apologies. Again, it's rather hard not to look. (laughs) No problem, Tyler said, gritting his teeth. On another subject, was trading good? No, the Glatun admitted. With the Horvath control of your heavy metals, which were paltry anyway, your world has virtually nothing to trade. Despite that, every time one of our ships comes here, we have to first meet with members of your senior government, who ask if there's anything we, the traders, mind you, can do about the Horvath. No, there's not. Then... We meet with senior corporate representatives who have gathered such things as we might be interested in, and we trade. The pattern is always the same. And really, what am I going to get for folk art? (laughs) The Venus de Milo is hardly folk art, Tyler said. He'd seen the news. Not to mention the paintings. He paused and sighed. Sorry. I really do understand the situation, probably better in some ways than those senior representatives. Hmm, from your comic I would say that is the case, but how exactly? Look up Polynesian contact with the West, Tyler said. I assume that is, yes, the similarities are there. We do not carry diseases, but you're trading iron nails for pearls, Tyler said. Well, you were. Now our Horvath benefactors receive the pearls as an honorarium for their defense of our system, and we only have coconut husks and carvings to sell. Do you really think the Horvath are your benefactors? Wathay had asked. Of course I do, Tyler said, smiling. Our Horvath benefactors who find our systems as porous as you do and are listening to this conversation on my cell phone are our friends. Ah, the glutton said, making a noise, something like a sneeze. Don't worry. The Horvath are most certainly not listening to any conversation I am involved in. Really? Tyler asked. Really? Really? Horvath's systems are better than yours. But the information systems on what they call a battle cruiser, which is not much bigger than a Glatun Admiral's landing barge, are no match for even my ship. And I'll admit I don't have galaxy-class systems. The Horvath are most certainly not listening. In that case, Tyler said, smiling again, of course we're poor, they're stealing all our medals. What I don't get is why the glatun don't throw them out so glatun traders get the medals. Other than assuring the safety of trade, our military tries very hard to avoid non-strategic entanglements, what they had said. That has not always been the case, and we've had times in our history of military adventurism and colonialism, but we've given that up mostly. I can understand that, too. Tyler said, nodding. I know this is a shot in the dark, but have people sort of shown you, well, everything we have to trade? What do you mean? The Glatoon said, then held up a hand. Your turn to talk. Damn, Tyler said, getting up and trying to remember what he was going to say. He managed to stumble through some remarks, then sat back down quickly. You said something about everything you have to trade, what they had said. Your produced items are rather crude and expensive for you to produce compared to fabers, not economical for us. There's not much markup in the market for things that are simply made by hand. A faber can produce variation easily. We produce what you consider precious gems, practically as industrial waste. Got all that, Tyler said. I mean, you read the comic, covered that. True, and Forella really screwed those natives. Well, they deserved it. What about commodity materials? Tyler asked. You mean foodstuffs? Wattheet said. I did read the comic. You know as well as I that your foodstuffs are chemically incompatible. We may have some similarity in appearance to terrestrial organisms, but our chemistry is radically different. You covered that as well. Which is all very good theory, but hasn't been tested, Tyler said. Yes, it has, Wathayat said, by the first contact ship. We're incompatible. Did they test everything? Tyler said. If not... My turn to talk, what they had said, getting up. Where is that, ah, there's the speech. Tyler sort of tuned out his speech and thought. What are you doing before you leave? Tyler asked as Wathayet sat back down. We leave on Wednesday, Wathayet said. That's when we're picking up our last few trades. Not much on Monday, why? Let's check. "'Tyler said. "'I'll load up my pickup with just... stuff. "'You've got something that can tell if it's poisonous, I'm sure.' "'Yes,' Wathayat said. "'I'll bring a bunch of... stuff,' Tyler said. "'It'll take a bit for you to check it, "'but there might be something that you can find that's worth trading. "'If so, you make a profit, "'and I've got a lock on a major extraterrestrial market. "'Unlikely, but why think small?' Intriguing, Wathay had said. I'll do it, on one condition. Which is, Tyler asked warily, can you do a sketch? Mr. Vernon? Tyler looked up from the sketch he was doing and smiled. Hey, how you doing? Great, the man said, smiling. Six foot, short red hair really Irish complexion, green eyes, Miskatonic U t-shirt and jeans. My name's Dan Poor. I'm a really big fan. Glad to hear that, Tyler said, handing the previous customer his sketch. Thanks, Mr. Tyler, the kid said, forking over ten bucks. This is great. And thank you, Tyler said, ignoring the mistake in his name. Would you like a sketch, uh... Dan the redhead said. Uh, sure. He dug in his pocket and came up with two fives. Could you do one of the glatoon? Uh, Wathayat? Sure, Tyler said. Might as well get some practice. You guys were sure talking up a storm on the stage, Dan said. Turns out he did some research on the people he might be meeting and took to trade hard, Tyler said, starting to sketch rapidly. I guess... A story about a group of space free-traders would make sense to an alien free-trader, Dan said. Were you just talking about the comic? That and why I stopped doing it, Tyler said. And he wants me to come over to the ship and do a sketch of him and the crew and the ship, trade-hard style. Getting paid in Atacerk? Dan asked curiously. I wish, Tyler said, handing over the sketch. Thanks for your continued support. Uh, Are you part of Trade Crew? Uh, no, Dan said. But I'd like to get a What's Your Score t-shirt. Twenty-five bucks, Tyler said, handing over a large. And thank you again. Must be a bit of a come-down doing small cons, Dan said, forking over the money. I hope I didn't just love the people, Tyler said neutrally. Anything else? No, Dan said. Thanks. Special Agent Daniel Nolan Poor got in the van and was swept head to foot before he opened his mouth. He's meeting with the Glatun, Did't get into when. says he's just doing a sketch of the crew and the captain. Why do they want a sketch? the senior special agent asked. said that Wateiette's a fan. Dan said, shrugging. Makes sense. Ride it up, the SSA said. Longhand. I want somebody with a camera, and I shouldn't have to point this out, but a chemical camera getting shots. I don't want the Horvath or the Glatun to realize they're under surveillance. That was John Ringo's Live Free or Die, and that's
1: it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to audible.com, and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to DJ Butler and praise, thanks and gratitude to David Weber for sitting down to talk with us today. Tune in next week for part two of their discussion and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afsharirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Tune in here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.